You're listening to The Industrial Movement, where we discuss the people, the processes, and the equipment that drives American manufacturing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The Industrial Movement podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and the show notes can be found at our website at www.theindustrialmovement.com. Come back often and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow the show on Twitter at The Industrial Movement or on our Facebook page. All links to our social media can be found in the show notes and also at the bottom of our website. Now, let's get on to the show. Hi, folks. Welcome back to The Industrial Movement. I'm your show host, Morty Hodge. With me, as always, is my trusty sidekick, Greg Smith. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we have Paul Banks. He's the plant manager at Logan Aluminum. Paul, welcome to The Industrial Movement. Oh, thank you, Morty. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Paul, tell us a little bit about your career path and then a little bit about Logan Aluminum. Okay, great. Well, let's start with Logan Aluminum. That's probably a more interesting story. And then we'll get down to my particular uh, path. We're probably one of the biggest plants that you've never heard of. We're sort of like the BASF. You use a lot of our products, but you probably have no idea where it comes from. So Logan Aluminum is located in western Kentucky. It's in a, a small town called uh, Russellville. We have nearly 50 acres of manufacturing capability under roof. And uh, the claim to fame here is we make a, a just shy of 50% of the aluminum that goes into the aluminum cam market in the United States. It's somewhere around that 46, 47%. So I always like to say, no matter what state of the union, if you get a six pack, there is a good chance that half of that six pack, that aluminum came through this plant in Russellville, Kentucky. And we run 24 7, 365 days a year on Christmas. Occasionally we'll have some shifts that can be off to spin on it for a head on the volume. But three o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon, this plant's running, making can sheet. And a good portion of that is from recycled aluminum cans. So it's a great business to be in. It's one of the greenest businesses to be in. Uh, although if you're at this plant, we do have a lot of melt furnaces and a lot of heavy equipment. But it takes 5% of the energy to make a recycle can as opposed to a new can. So it is a tremendous benefit if you recycle those aluminum cans. only takes 5% of that energy. So they're just a lot of fun facts and figures like that. So it's a great business to be in, and I'm passionate about manufacturing. We have uh, just shy of 1,500 employees, so uh, it's a pretty large manufacturing facility. So we're fully integrated, milk, cast, hot rolling, cold rolling, finishing, a, a big facility. What a great statistic. 95% less energy to manufacture a recycled aluminum can than it is to, you know, I would imagine, go in and mine the different minerals and yeah, it start, so yeah a lot of people don't know aluminum but it starts from uh basically looks like dirt it's bauxite but it looks like red dirt and then uh, from there it has to be go through a chemical separation then it has to go through an electrical separation to uh, create alumina which looks like almost like a a really fine white sand or uh, a really white powder and then from there you know you electrically separate the aluminum out of it so it's a really a it's a difficult product to get, but once you got it, it's infinitely recyclable. So once you got it, you don't want to lose it. And uh, the United States is one of the worst countries for recycling aluminum cans. It's one of those, it's, it's definitely getting better though. It's, it's improving, but 
a lot of the world is ahead of us on just the straight out recycling. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and up there, it's a 10 cent deposit on all glass yeah. and aluminum. And so there's not a question about recycling up there. They're probably Absolutely. one of the best states Michigan is. And oddly enough, I'll give you a compliment on that state. It's some of the cleanest recycled aluminum cans that we get. It's pristine. So it doesn't have all the contaminations in it, straws, paper, glass, all that sort of stuff. So it is a premier recycled product coming out of Michigan and some other states that have uh, deposits. Yeah, I can't name them all. I know there's a couple other ones that have five and 10 cent. It's curious why other states don't adopt that. Knowing that statistic, we can conserve 95% of the energy that goes into developing aluminum. And on a side note, Paul, us beer drinkers of America would like to thank you for your service, sir. (laughs) Hey, we we do the best to keep that product good. We want that cold beer in your hand. So, uh, and micro brewers now, a lot of uh, these micro places, Used to be bottle preferred, but now it's aluminum can preferred. It's just such a clean and well-made package, and it's made in uh, high volume. So we do about two and a half billion pounds a year. We're growing to three billion pounds a year, and uh, that that still doesn't meet the need of the market. So the market is definitely in a growth state. So that's a little bit about the industry, and you can tell I'm very passionate about uh, the manufacturing side. But I have a long and torturous tale on how I became a plant manager. I don't know any other way to say that. Well, let's go all the way. I don't want to start off when I was a kid, but let's start off in high school. I grew up in far eastern Kentucky, which is in the heart of Appalachia, which uh, I'm very proud of my roots. So this is not a knock Appalachia. I love I love the people, my family and the area that I grew up in. But I, I wasn't the strongest student ever. Education was not something that I really had a deep appreciation for. So I uh, wasn't always the best student. And um, my parents were worried that I was going to get in some trouble my senior year. So I don't know how we ever worked this out, but I ended up not going to my senior year of high school and going on to college. So I went to a junior college and got high school credit and college credit, much like you do now in high school. But that was unheard of. I go to college as a young guy and I'm in college five and a half years. Uh, It was like a permanent. I enjoyed college. And if you know what I mean, back to the beer drinkers of America, we enjoy college. So I did enjoy college, but, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to be a coal miner. So I started off in pre-engineering and man, there's no way I could do the math. Then I uh, thought about uh, different things and then decided to do computer science. And at that time, uh, computers were just starting to be a thing. And I worked one summer as a programmer and I'm like, those people are crazy. There's no way I can do that for a career. And actually took a couple of psychology electives and actually ended up majoring in psychology. Very odd path, right? And I'm here to tell you with a psychology degree, you can work at McDonald's anywhere in the world with that degree. Does that make sense? I have to be a laugh that's exactly You come out with a degree, but you're not qualified to do anything. So I, I worked in a couple of rehabilitation centers and by being in school five and a half years, I didn't want to go any further. And then I ended up finding a job at a new uh, manufacturing center in Berea, Kentucky, and it was called Alcan. And that's short for Aluminum Canada. Most people know Alcoa, which is Aluminum Company of America. This was Alcan Aluminum Canada. And I got a job at that plant as an operator and sport trucks and that kind of stuff. And I just really enjoyed manufacturing right from the the, the get go. 
And this is where your life experience, Marty, starts to starts to help. You never know how your career path is going to go. Nobody hired me because I was a psychology major to, to work in the aluminum business. But once you get into the aluminum business or any other manufacturing, there's lots of opportunities. So as I said, I wanted to be uh, I was looking at computer science for a while. Well, that's right when manufacturing was starting to get computers and you were starting to write work instructions and job descriptions. Everything was starting to be put into uh, computer databases, those kind of quite a little bit of experience with that. So I was able to go into a lab tech role where you start to develop some of these standard practices for making you know, your aluminum better. Then you started hearing about Kaizen and continuous improvement. Well, you know, having psychology kind of helps. You get to know people. You're a little more comfortable with that. And uh, had some opportunity to work with uh, continuous improvement projects. And life just sort of happened. So all those life experiences start to, you start to build a career. I never, ever had a thought I would be a plant manager. I just wanted to make a little more money tomorrow and have something that I enjoy doing. And uh, that's sort of what uh, led me to where I am now. So I started off the plant in central Kentucky. I uh, was there about 16 years, did just about every job you can imagine, starting off sweeping the floors all the way up to uh, it really wasn't a quality manager position, but it was sort of that that was the work I was helping uh, plant quality. And then I transferred to Logan Aluminum, which I mentioned is where I'm at now. And this plant was a supplier to uh, to Logan Aluminum. I came down and you guys may be familiar with a continuous improvement black belt. I was a black belt. that came here. Then that opened a door to get into some leadership roles and then uh, managing roles. And we did a green field here. So build, build a, a recycling plant on a property. And, you know, just things happen just all the way through there. You look back over your career from the time I worked construction when I was in high school, you know, a 13, 14 year old working summer construction jobs all the way through college with chemistry, physics math, pre-engineering, you get into calculus and all that. You don't have to know calculus to do what I do, but knowing a little bit about math helps. So all those uh, figure in. But I have to say that probably the best thing was psychology, not because you read people's minds. A lot of times people are like, oh, I can read, but you learn yourself. And then once you know yourself, then you can do a lot of good stuff, right? Uh, you, you, can, you have an understanding of other people, you know yourself, you know what makes people tick. And from there, it, it really worked out well. And uh, somewhere along the way, manufacturing led into leadership roles. And I just absolutely love leadership. I mean, just the study of it, listening to other leaders, growing in leadership, failing miserably as a leader. And I'll never do that again. And uh, the short successes and the major failures, you just got to have a passion for both. And basically landed at a place that I get to do both manufacturing and leadership. Excellent. I love your passion for our aluminum industry. What is the biggest challenge facing your industry today? So I'm going to answer that two parts. The number one challenge is hands down is safety. 1,500 people here. If there's anything I lose sleep over, it is trying to keep people safe. And that's not being a cliche. We're a big, heavy industry. It's unforgiving. And how you get to I always pick on men for this. This is just horrible. If this plant was 1,500 women, we would be so much safer. 1,500 men think they can still pick up uh, the same amount of weight as they did in high school and they can bench press 250 pounds and they just think they're supermen. And that once you get about 50, everything you used to could do, you can't do. So you get hurt, you put, you put your body in places you shouldn't do it. 
You don't stop and think. Men are impulsive. That's the biggest thing is just trying to keep people engaged. And we call it fast brain, slow brain. You, you try to make sure people are making good, safe decisions before they act. So just stop, think, make sure what you're going to do is not going to get you hurt. So that's the biggest challenge for just operating the plant where you can always recover from uh, production upsets and all that kind of stuff. But injuries and certainly life changing injuries, those are the ones that you just you just lose sleep over. So that's number one. What's facing the aluminum industry? And this is going to be an odd one, Greg, and I guarantee you weren't going to think I was going to say this. We can't grow fast enough. You guys may remember a few years ago, and I don't remember the exact time, but I think it was Discovery Channel or something did this uh, article or a show on all the plastic floating around out in the ocean. It's like a plastic island. Almost overnight, aluminum was reborn in the United States. Recycling rates were trending down and it, plastics were taking over. Almost overnight, that turned. So right now, there are two more integrated mills like Logan being built. Just started, just announced there's uh, the market capacities for at least another one. So the problem is we can't grow fast enough to meet demand. So that's a great problem to have. So that what that means for here locally is we have to squeeze every ounce of productivity out of all of our processes, right? So we're always going to, after loss eradication, improvement, trying to prevent those uh, excursions and those upset conditions where you, you're down a lot. So that creates a lot of challenges in the plant because you just never can let your guard down. You got to just be producing, producing, producing. And uh, I'm so proud of this plant here at Logan. I've only been the plant manager back here for a year and a half. So I was here for uh, about 16 years and left to start up another another plant that's part of the company and then uh, came back to Logan. I'm so proud of this plant. So I, they never missed a pound of production through COVID. This plant never missed a pound of production through COVID. And it's amazing that we have a team management concept here and it's been that way for 40 years. And I'm telling you, our operators, they just stepped up and they manage shifts, they manage overtime, they manage coverage. And it's a humbling place to work because nobody wants it to fail on their watch. It's just fantastic. So the biggest challenge is growing as fast as we need to and keeping people safe while we do it. Now, a lot of the sustainability things are going to put a lot of pressure on the aluminum industry, but it, it'll be a lot of growth too. trying to figure out how to be greener, use less natural resources, things like that. But, you know, we'll, we'll manage through that. Yeah, that takes good leadership to get through a time like that and to get folks to step up in that capacity to go above and beyond. They have to feel cared for in order for them to care. So that says a lot about you and your team. Switching gears to personal mastery, what advice would you give to other manufacturing leaders listening to the show? This may sound like a cliche, but again, team management and um, self-directed work teams, and those buzzwords have been around forever. But it works at this plant, and it's been that way for 40 years. The plant was built in uh, the early 80s, and it's really what we call the secret sauce. And it's not like we don't try to tell everybody what it is, but it really is working with your teams, trying to bubble up those good ideas, trying to have a culture of owning it where people can, you know, the, the see it, solve it, own it, do it mentality. And it takes so much nurturing. And it's not like you can talk about your culture once a year. This plant, it's talked about just about every day, if not every meeting. Does this decision improve our culture, hurt our culture? 
will it hurt the culture a year from now? Does, you know, and not in uh, these times that are challenging and you have to move fast. The temptation is for leadership to make the decisions because we just don't have time to go out there and talk to everybody. Right. You hear that. The problem is you really don't have time not to do it. And we still screw that up. You know, you, you just feel like you got to move ahead. And every time you step back, and you look like, man, we should have taken the time to do this the right way, which is talk to people, talk to the people that are impacted by it or whatever, and then make those decisions. And it just goes so much better. It's just still even today, I still have to you just want to go fast sometimes and you think you're just bothering people. But people need to be involved in uh, the decision making. They just do. We all want to be involved in the decision making if it hurts us. It provides the ultimate buy in, right? If everyone's involved in uh, making that decision, then there's nobody to complain about the decision. And one thing I got to go back and answer Greg's question again. Another challenge that this plant is having, and I think a lot of us are, this plant's historically had under 2% turnover. It's been for 40 years, it's been a percent, percent and a half. This past year, we're around 8% turnover. And this year, we're probably pushing 10% turnover. And part of that is just the uh, number of people that uh, did not return to the workforce and the, the amount of opportunity. For the first time in our history, we have people that will work a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and just uh, no call, no show. And we've never had that. We've always been one of the higher paying employers and people wanted a job here. And this is one where uh, we're having to wrestle with how do we do this different environment? Because doing the same things we've always done are not getting the same results. So maintaining a very competent and well-trained workforce is a big challenge. So You're not the only one, brother. <laughs> yeah. And t- talk to us about some uh, resources or books or that have helped you along your path to where you are today. So I don't know whether I say I'm an avid reader or I'm av- uh, an avid audio book listener. Oh, yeah. We're with As you. I told you guys I'm not the best student and uh, I'm not trying to be humble or modest. Just a little bit of a sidebar. My wife is a school teacher and she's retired. She can read a book a day. Right now, not technical books, but she can just she is a voracious reader. For me, I'm a very slow reader and. I could be reading and it can be talking about something green. And all of a sudden I'm thinking the green grass. And I think of the squirrel and I, my, my mind is off somewhere else. It's like, no, I got to go back to focus on the book. So I'm an avid audiobook listener. Some books I do ultimately get reading, but a lot of times I just do the audiobooks. So there's been so many books over the years that's really impacted me. And that's a great question. One of the early ones was The Goal by Eli Goldratt. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read The Goal. That's a fantastic book on the theory of constraints. That book has been around forever. And it's a story about uh, a Boy Scout troop. And they had the slowest guy in the back and how the process is separated. So you needed to put the slowest guy in the front and then to help your uh, process stay together and focus. So having that mentality is just a just a phenomenal book. And uh I try to go back and read that every couple of years. Actually, here on uh, my desk, one of my favorite books, and you can see it's all marked up, is a book called Execution by, um, let's see, it's Larry Bosney and, and uh, Ram Sharan. It's a great book to listen to, and it just talks about uh, how you have to uh, execute and you need to promote people in your organization that can execute. At the end of the day, it's not always the person who can speak the best or looks the prettiest or whatever. It's uh, you need people in your organization that can execute and just be able to get stuff done. And probably one of the most, and this is just a small sampling, 
probably the, or I'll say the two most recent books, and I'm looking at them over here on the corner of my credenza, is the, the Checklist Manifesto is a fantastic book on building checklists, and it talks about the airline industry and the medical fields where no matter how good you are, you can just forget to do some stuff and it can have life changing consequences. So it's just a very practical book. And then the other book is uh, Change the Culture, Change the Game, which is based on the Oz principle. I have listened. Uh, so I started off listening and I couldn't process it. I got the electronic book and I still couldn't process it. Now, ultimately, we went back to paper on that one because there's a lot of visuals in the, the book. And then once I got through the paper, I went right back to listing and it's fantastic, but it's called the results pyramid. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the results pyramid, but your experiences, everything is based on experience all the way up for results. So if you want to change the results at the top of the pyramid, you have to start at the bottom by giving people a different set of experiences. Experiences change belief. Belief drives action. Action drives results. So no matter what organization you're in, if you're not happy with the results you're getting, and it doesn't matter if it's church, if it's work, if it's on the football field, if the results you're getting aren't what you want, you have to go all the way down to the experiences that are being provided. Most leaders try to drive action to get results, which is the top half of the pyramid. Now you can see why you need the paper book, right? But you got to remember lots of experiences lead to results. So leaders try to drive action. We're strong. We're just going to go in there and make people do stuff. This book will show you that doesn't last. It, uh, it's that you have to set a different set of experiences so you can change people's belief structure. Not not manipulating. It's just that uh, don't don't misunderstand. This is not manipulation. It's like if you want it to be a much more quality product that you make. You just got to give people a lot of experience about how important quality is. Go visit customers, go to the consumer, talk about whatever that is to change the experiences. You start to change people's beliefs that will drive the different action that will give you the different results. Strong leaders can can uh, muscle good results through for a short period of time. But if you're not changing hearts and minds through experience, then you're not going to you're not going to get lasting results. So it's it's. Uh, it's really around creating top one experiences. And those are experiences that have no room for interpretation. It's clear you experience something, you know what it is. It, it is impacting to you. That's great stuff. I love it. Thank you. Paul, who are a couple of people who have influenced you in your career? You know, really, I don't have any like role models in the public, uh, you know, like out in the public. I've had so many great leaders. I hate to say bosses. I don't know if I've really ever had a boss. I've just been fortunate to have some great leaders. Our previous plant manager here, Kim Purdue, is just a great mentor, just such a culture warrior is what I would say. Uh, our current president here, uh, Logan, is a, a business and a corporation. So we have a president on side and then you have the, the guy that's the, the operations, which is me. Role models that uh, give you a different perspective. You know, I really don't know, uh, you know, just. I've just been blessed with some really good people to work with in the company that I've had. What has been your biggest lesson learned thus far in your career? And what did you take away from it? Boy, I sound like a cliche. <laughs> listen a lot. Listen a lot. And I'm talking off the, I'm talking all the time here, but uh, uh, listening, listening more than I talk. Trying to be the last guy in the meeting to talk. Because if you're in a leader role, once you speak, you just change the dynamic of the meeting. 
So uh, it's really important to try to just stop and listen. Always give people the benefit of the doubt. There is so many times you hear something happen on the shop floor, plant floor, an accident, a quality excursion. And all of a sudden it's like, how could they do that? You know, that's what you'll hear. But usually once you go down there, you find out they were doing everything they could to do the right thing. And it was just a bad set of circumstances or the, you know, just it's not a they thing. It's usually we didn't say what was supposed to be done. We felt typically we fail our employees way more than they ever make bad choices. Or does that make sense? Uh, you know, it's just give people the benefit of the doubt. Stop. Think. Listen to everybody and, and uh Try to be slow about making change and try to make sure people know we're here for the long term and not a not a short term. And I'm sure tonight I'll lay down in the bed and think that was the stupidest answer I could have given. Why didn't I say this? But I think probably that is uh, that is one of the major ones. And uh, the change is there was a graphic that I once saw and it talked about. And this is where we need a video. But leaders start to be aware of change. So their their concern is really high. Over time, they get comfortable with it. You share it with your uh, middle managers. Well, they're they're high, and then they start to get comfortable with it. Then we roll it out to the shop floor, and we can't understand why they're not comfortable with it because we've been dealing with it for six months. And uh, that is a, always a lesson we have to learn, that we don't give time to people to process change. Because, again, leaders know about it so far ahead of time. You've worked through it. And then you just dump it out to a workforce and like, man, I don't know why these guys don't get this. You know, we give them a day to get comfortable with it and don't understand why. So the pace of change to do all the, the communication and stakeholder analysis and who's this going to hurt? Who's this going to help? Who benefits? Those are probably the real, real lessons that I've learned uh, over the last 30 years. What are some of the day to day challenges that you're facing or you have faced in your position? Yeah, so safety, again, as we said, that's a number one, so we won't go through that. But it is it is also the pace of business. Just there's there's every year you think it can't get any busier than it's been, but every year it seems like it's busier than it was. And uh, we really don't have a lot of time to – my most comfortable thing is just like we're talking about, when you can get a group of people together and brainstorm and do the traditional process improvement, but things come so fast now, it's really hard to do that. A lot of team meetings, just you're, you're wrapped up and tied up so much that it's hard to go deep in anything. So uh, some of the daily challenges, just bouncing around and hitting, hitting everything you need to do with enough wisdom that you're not going to wreck. Try to be sure that, OK, this is a really sensitive area. We need to take a lot more focus on this and try not to get engaged in things that uh, matter less, but it does come fast. I mean, it absolutely flies. I'm sure you guys uh, see the same thing. I'm sure every industry sees the same thing. Tell us about a typical day at your facility. What is what is the process? We're a large facility, so uh, we start off just, the units start earlier. So I'm going to say I start about seven o'clock in the morning or something. I get tons of reports uh, electronically generated. So the time you get to work at uh, 7, 7.30, you pretty much know what's, what's happened or where we are. The units are meeting starting at 5.30 or 6 and all this information starting to roll up so that by about 7.45, uh, we'll have a small report out amongst the, the manager here, the manager group, and what are the issues of the day, what's the calendar look like, what's coming up. And then uh, the plan in total has a safety hour. 
And uh, that's something that one of our, we're a joint ownership plant. We're a JV. One of the owners brought in and uh, we found that to be quite successful is where all the unit leadership, and we have seven different manufacturing units, I think here, go out and they do uh, safety walkthroughs from eight to nine o'clock in the morning. And that's, uh, that's not an audit. So I don't want to misrepresent here. This is walking and talking. Uh, you walk up. How's it going, Greg? How you doing? You look tired. You look hot. Hey, you look happy today. What's happening? How's your how is that uh, grandson of yours doing? You know, you, you said he was getting ready to start off. So it's walking and talking to people and finding out what's on their mind and certainly from a safety viewpoint. But it's really just a time for the plant leadership to engage with the workforce. And then from there, we go into uh, quality meetings and continuous improvement meetings and you meet with the owners, you talk to people about what's going on, what's broke, what might break, what parts are we out of, supply chain issues. Today, one of our machine centers has been struggling with burning up hydraulic pumps and the lead times are a couple, three weeks long for things that we used to be able to get in a day or two. So it's a Friday. We're, how do we make it through the weekend? What if it breaks? We're just things like that. We try to be a more strategic looking organization. And we're really trying to muscle that through is to try to get above the the noise and try to keep that strategic view. But it uh, seems like day to day things happen. And certainly coming off COVID, you were managing day to day, right? It was like, OK, 100 people are out today. What are we going to do today to make it through? You know, the, those kind of things. So a typical day is really just spent in my world. The operations side is we work all day to make sure we get through the night. And then Monday through Friday, we work to make sure we get through the weekend. So uh, you don't want to have to be calling people in or work through the weekend. So it's trying to set the teams up for success and make sure we have the right resources available and things like that. I know that's probably a weak answer, but that's kind of a, a typical day. And that's probably one of the other lessons learned. Uh, seems like the, the, the higher you go, the less productive you feel. Uh, you know, it's just you don't uh, walk out with a feeling of, of uh success a lot because you didn't really move something you didn't really do work by the definition of work you stay busy but you didn't feel like you moved something from point a to point b but when you do get those home runs when you see a you solve a quality issue you solve a productivity issue you you, you get something going it's uh, it's very rewarding very rewarding agreed i tell people that when you get to a certain level you can go on vacation but you don't get that feeling that feeling of total relief when you're an hourly team member and you're check out on Friday and you're off next week. It's woohoo. I yeah. don't feel anything, right? When you're a leader and you get to that level, you sure you can go on vacation and you're not there physically at the plant, but <laughs> you don't get that relief. So I understand. <laughs> that is so that is so well said because you don't have the same like you said, there's no vacation. You really don't get to turn your phone off. You may be able to go out for an hour or two, and uh, but you come back and you pick it back up. And it's not a matter of trust. That It always felt like, well, you can't walk away. You're not trusting people. Well, that's not really it. There's just a lot of things to be done and decisions to be made. And you want to be there to support your team. You, well, you care. You care. Yeah. yeah, you yeah. care about your team. You care about the process. And it's not a matter of not trusting. It's you care and you're engaged and you just want to make sure that everybody's taken care of. Everybody has what they need. I agree with you. It's not a it's not a micromanaging thing. It's not a lack of empowerment. It's a care. It's a positive accountability. I don't know what else to say. It's or a responsible freedom or I want to do it. I don't want somebody 
needing something and I'm a text away or a phone call away and they're suffering. I mean, and that, that's not just me. That's one of the uh, the secret sauces here. I mean, so many of our uh, like automation engineers and resources, which the success of the plant lives on. And we're so automated. You know, these guys are like, hey, I'm going on vacation. This is my number. This is where I'll be. This is a resort. This is the hotel. Can't get this. Get a hold of my wife. This is her. It's because they want to be accessible. And we try like heck not to have to bother them. But it's so comfortable to know that if you need them, they're there. That's another real, real benefit. It's humbling when you see how, how hard people work. Yeah, agreed. How has technology changed your industry or is it going to change? Do you see changing? Yes. If you walk through here, you think we're a brute force industry. But in, in reality, we're really quite finessful with the level of automation and things that uh, that we have. I think what's going to change going forward is, uh, and at least for Logan Aluminum, it's, you know, we still have a lot of manual tasks here that's starting to change. But the discussion is try to figure out ways to automate and take people having to do these dangerous tasks out or mindless tasks. We had new hires today. So um, and this is always a story is like when you get hired at Logan, 75 percent of the job is going to be the pushing of the buttons or the doing of something. The other 25 percent, we really want your brains. Right. And we'd like to have brains for 100 percent of the time, but there's still work to be done. The more things that we can automate, the more brain power we get to use. Having a guy sitting on a fork truck all day is is highly essential, but it's not the best use of the brain power. So, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to automate where we want the smarts of people to figure out how to make us more efficient, more safe and not just task oriented. So I think this plant's always going to be a, a high workforce. It's never going to be. Well, never say never. There might be androids walking around here in 100 years doing all these tasks. But in the short term, we're looking at automation to, to be able to be more efficient, try to take menial jobs like banding coils. You know, we got robots that can do that now and or debanding coils that are in process. You don't have to have somebody out there with a pair of cutters to free this up. So uh, that's changing, changing our industry. We are starting to uh, I'll use the word dabble not the, the technical side of this, but certainly AI, big data analytics are a big, a big growing thing for what we're doing. And uh, I call it a supervisory software for lack of a better term, but really some neat things starting to happen where software can just monitor your processing equipment and it monitors for variation or things that change. You don't have to put a lot of stuff in there. It just, it will alert people that it's running different today than it did a week or six months ago, and it can send alerts, which can tell you something's getting ready to break or something's going really, really well. And I think that's fantastic because that that's something us as humans just don't, uh, it's very hard to do. A great automation resource does that. They're just always monitoring and are able to pick up these little uh, signals. But I think, you know, I think technology is going to really help us with troubleshooting and preventing breakdowns and things like that going forward. And then the data analytics, I think it's really going to help us to understand that every third Tuesday of the leap year at 3 a.m., your plant breaks or your plant sets records. And, uh, you know, we can dig in and try to understand that because we're just this big, long, fully integrated meal. And we don't always know why something may happen at one end and causes on the other. We're not smart enough to pull that together. So. I think I think it's exciting time. Man. I just think it's not a better time to be in manufacturing and, and opportunities. And uh, I think all walks of life need to look at manufacturing. 
finance, engineering, accounting, manufacturing, where it's at. It's just fantastic jobs. And you can build a career as an automation guy, robotics guy. You know, that's state of the art. Uh, come here, work at a Logan Aluminum somewhere, and uh, you can build a nice career out of that. Absolutely. We hear that time and time again. I think the younger generation just doesn't realize, and we haven't done a good enough job of, of portraying how, how advanced we are. And not only that, but we're not the dark, dirty, dangerous places that manufacturing used, you know, they used to be, right? It's clean. It's well lit. It's, you've talked about how you focus on safety so much. You wouldn't hear that 50 years ago. No, right? not at all. So, I mean, manufacturing has come a long way and it is very attractive or should be to the younger generation. All right. I know you're busy, Paul. This is the last question and then we'll let you go. Talk about some of the, uh, how is the supply chain issues impacting you and what are some of the things you guys are doing to overcome those? Man, that's, that's a situation that's just continuing to unfold. Just like I mentioned today, we're having a, we're having a problem where a hydraulic pumps burning up and the lead time for these things are weeks instead of hours or days. Some of the things we're doing is uh, certainly upping our spares count, you know, min maxes in our inventory system. And when we're aware of something that might be having to come, if it's coming, we're in Kentucky, if it's coming from Tennessee and it's made in Tennessee, that's, uh, you know, maybe that's not changed much. Now, raw materials obviously could be a factor, but we know if it's coming from Europe or China or somewhere and it's going to have to get put on a boat and all that kind of stuff. We just are starting to count on long lead times and upping our, uh, open up our, uh, our, like I said, our min maxes. The other thing, I guess the term I would use is asset care. Certainly, uh, you just can't run an asset to failure and like, you know, you got three spares and you just change it out. So we're certainly, I think Logan Luna has always been very focused on reliability. I mean, that's just part of who we are. But I think even more so is uh, with these long lead times is making sure that we're taking really good care of our assets. If anything starts to show vibration or heat or cooling, whatever it's doing, that's not what it's supposed to be. If we really try to intervene quickly to extend the life and then immediately try to make sure we've got a spare somewhere or some on the way or something, you know, to be ready to do it. And then we're probably I don't know if this is a fact, but my sense is we're doing more repairs then uh, internally, then maybe what we used to, where we would send something else to get repaired. We'll use rebuild kits for pumps or cylinders or something, you know, trying to make sure we have more things at hand. Certainly, there's a lot of uh, looking around, too, to see if something in one end of the plant could work at another end of the plant, or does one of our sister plants have have three of those, and we have three, and Okay, together we're good, but we'll buy five of these in case they need them. So it's, uh, I don't know that we've taken a holistic approach, what this means long term, but day to day, you're asking Greg about the day to day stuff. This is, you know, what what are we behind on? What's our critical inventory? We do have pretty good plans on a piece of machinery can be down a day or three days before it's critical and just around asset care. So it's driving a lot more of those decisions to be made. Definitely more inventory though. You know, you just got more, more money tied up in uh, spare parts. So uh, we're getting, we're going through some expansions and you just try to get steel for a new, a new motor or a new motor base. I mean, it'll take you uh, 18 months to get something like that. New rail cars are two years. So uh, two years to get a new rail car made. So another thing that we're having to do is be very forward looking. And if you need something, trying to think two years ahead now is 
is a challenge. So I hope it turns around. You know, you hope it gets more back to what it used to be. I don't know that it will get back to what it was. And I don't think the turnover will ever get back to as good as it was. So we have to learn to deal with the sort of the new state, I think, right now. But I'm not pessimistic about it. I'm excited about it. For every problem, there is so much opportunity for somebody that's great in logistics or great in planning or asset care or continuous improvement and vibration analysis. I mean, it just it just drives. There's just so, a lot of opportunity. Yeah, there'll be a lot of innovation that comes out of these issues. Yeah, yeah you're right. Absolutely. Let technology and who knows what the future holds, but you're right. The Americans are resilient. American manufacturing is even more resilient and we'll always figure out a way to overcome everything. Paul, this was great. It is an honor to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. Real quick, if some of our plant managers and maintenance managers and manufacturing leaders that are listening to this podcast wanted to reach out with you, maybe they had a question or something maybe that you might be able to help them with, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, like I think many of us are, which is where uh, you and I connected. So it's Paul, P-A-U-L dot Banks, B-A-N-K-S at Logan, L-O-G-A-N dash, dash or hyphen, aluminum.com. So Logan dash aluminum.com, paul.banks at loganaluminum.com. And again, anybody wants to connect and talk about leadership, best practice sharing, manufacturing, team management, just absolute passions. And uh, if you need people to come and talk to your plants or whatever, we got so many great people that are so willing to share and improve the manufacturing base in the U.S. It's uh, it's just something that we're we're excited about. So very happy to get involved uh, with people as much as time permits, which is tight, but it's a labor of love on that side for sure. Yeah, I think that I think anybody listening would be fools not to reach out to you as a resource. You're doing great things. Thank you, Paul. Thank Thanks you for joining us today. To brag a little bit about Logan Aluminum too. You guys are doing a great job. I appreciate being able to follow what you guys do. So thank you very much. My yeah. pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Have a good day. Well, folks, that's it for this week's episode. Be sure to visit our website, www.theindustrialmovement.com, to view today's show notes and get more golden nuggets of value that we have collected from manufacturing and industrial professionals in our archived episodes. On our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter and find links to join the Industrial Movement community on Facebook. The Industrial Movement podcast is where we discuss the people, the process, and the equipment that drives American manufacturing. I'm your host, Morty Hodge, wishing you great success.